Welcome to a new episode of OTT Talks. I am Emily Hayter. I'm an OTT associate. And in today's episode, we are talking with three people who have been working on evidence-informed policymaking for some time in different contexts. Uh, we have Karanda Morgan, who is evidence lead in the evidence and implementation team at Nesta in the UK, where she's been involved in the Capabilities for Academic Policy Engagement, CAPE program. Uh, we have Mohammed Awal, who's team lead on social accountability and the SDGs, work stream at the Center for Democratic Development, CDD in Ghana. And uh, Mohammed is working on a project to strengthen capacity and incentives for the use of evidence and policymaking in Ghana, funded by Hewlett Foundation. And we also have Ababa Tadesi, who is lead of the Partnership for Evidence and Equity and Responsive Social Social Systems Peers Project, which brings together 13 countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean, Europe, and the Middle East to advance evidence-informed policymaking with a focus on social policies. So we are really glad to have Mohammed Ababa and Karanda here today. Really nice to have all three of you. We know that we have a lot of interesting questions we hope to get through, and we appreciate that you were able to join us. So I wanted to kick off by asking each of you what evidence use means for you um, in the projects that you're working on at the moment. How are you defining this and how are you uh, working on it? In the context of the Peers Initiative, the focus is on evidence synthesis and systematic reviews, but research also includes evaluations, right? It also includes what we would call contextual evidence, right? The, the evidence that you need to better understand the communities that are going to be impacted by your policy or program. So this is operational data, this is population-specific data, this is demographic data. And then it's also experiential evidence and tacit knowledge, right? That really draws on the experiences of the people that are going to be impacted by the programs and the policies that you're trying to design. I, I think that... Um... Ababa sort of lays out the, the broad view uh, in terms of what each one of us uh, are seeking to do relative to how we can influence policy practice with, with, with evidence. And I think for our case, it is more focusing on the subnational level. So you hear these conversations, these efforts going on at the national level to try and influence processes, systems to strengthen evidence use. Uh, but there is there, there's quite little attention on what happens at the subnational level where policy implementation is really at the center of local authorities, local government, and all of that. And so for us, we approach it both from a behavior. So what, how do we change behavior around evidence using policy implementation? How do you build capacity to amplify this behavior, uh, so to speak? And how do you build communities that would continue to be engaging and having conversations about these issues? And I think that's where we approach our own evidence use uh, practice because you would find that in, in terms of policy implementation, many of our civil society organizations and NGOs that work at the subnational level, what we do essentially is policy evaluation. We, we do evaluation, we monitor, and we hope that some of the feedback we generate goes into policy uh, um, implementation and, and sort of feedback into the policy process. But there's also a problem about the relationship between NGOs, civil society organizations who do this work in these communities and then the local government itself. And so whether our research questions have been informed by the policy needs, uh, the implementation challenges and gaps 
that we see in the way government programs have been implemented and how that feedback into that process and whether we have access to that process. So that's the big, the big part of the work that we're trying to do and to facilitate how we can create that. And so you see in our intervention, we're quite focused on relationship building, creating a community of practice where these conversations are ongoing would inform the kinds of things that we monitor as civil society organizations, but also the opportunity to bring back the feedback we collect from the field, from working with communities to influence policy implementation, decision-making in, in a routine basis uh, over there. Then you find that even the evidence that we generate ourselves, uh, you would see that uh, there is, there's little capacity to apply this evidence by, by bureaucrats uh, at that level. And so the question about building their capacity, about how to analyze national level data, civil society generated data, and to bring this into the policy space was also one thing that we try to focus a lot of our attention in. So finding ways of building relationships and connections across these different environments, across evidence producers, across evidence consumers, help us really understand and create that broader inclusive idea of what evidence is, according to who, how that fits, how we can bring together diverse forms of evidence to understand which evidence can be mobilized for what purpose, at what time, and towards and 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 within um, with with what kind of connections at the heart of it. So the way we've done this work before is around really understanding what policymakers need in terms of capacities and capabilities. And when I say capacities and capabilities, I'm talking about not just like individual level competencies, right? Do you, can can I read this randomized control trial and understand what the effect size means in terms of how I integrate that into my decision making? But instead, uh, thinking about things like syntheses and searching and ability to to read and um, put evidence into practice. So understand what those individual competencies are, but also thinking about team-based capabilities and organizational organizational based capabilities, right? How can we tap into the broader wisdom of different strengths that exist within a team who are often working together to use evidence? How can an organization support this kind of work, whether it be putting aside time to allow people to learn from an evidence base or creating the knowledge management structures that really allow for the rapid use um, and integration of, of evidence into practice. So, um, yeah, really, really uh, interesting to think about evidence use, I think, uh, as, a, as a process of learning and how we can support this kind of learning both Within, uh, within an organization and, and between organizations as well, especially when we're thinking about the value out of networks of expertise or networks that help mobilize evidence, evidence for, for good. Thanks, Karanda. Yeah, I, I can hear so many common threads, you know, between all of your experience across quite a few different contexts. I can hear the importance of relationships at multiple levels coming through from, from everybody's comments um, and your focus on, on understanding users and, and um, their particular needs, um, even though um, a lot of the work does also include uh, relationships, brokering work with evidence pr uh, producers and suppliers, but um, a real attention and kind of nuance on understanding the use side and on understanding different levels of capacity, thinking about the different entry points. And it seems like you have quite different entry points in some of your projects. Um, so I wonder if we just do one kind of quick, quick fire. I mean, what would be one key thing um, for each of you that's been particularly striking or surprising personally for you about the project you're working on at the moment? Because I know you've all worked on evidence use in different contexts uh, for some time. So is there one thing that's particularly been striking or different for, for you about the project that you're working on at the moment that you'd point to? Let's go back to Ababa. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, I don't know that this is so much as sort of striking or different, but I really want to build on this, like the relational aspects of evidence-informed policymaking and the importance of relationships. So in the context of the PEERS initiative, I would say that over the course of the four years of PEERS, that over half of the countries have experienced a political transition of sorts, right? And so when this has happened, this has meant that they've had to go to the drawing board, right, um, to build new relationships, right? And this takes time, right? So we have kind of iteratively over the course of the partnership, like really been trying to wrestle with how to best support this. Um, and again, not so much of an aha moment, but really an affirmation of the importance of relationships and just how messy policymaking is. So this, this notion that you can fund this work in a kind of projectized and super linear way, I think just, I mean, we, we see it play out, right, in the context of our partnerships and, 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 and the work that we support. So, you know, we tested this idea of an opportunity fund, um, which is, okay, here's a pot of funding that everybody has access to. And you have access to it before you actually identify your opportunity, right? Because by the time you've identified your opportunity, you then have to apply for the funding. You've missed that window, right? And so this has given them a way to really have their, you know, eyes open, ears to the ground and listen out for key moments, key opportunities that they can lean into um, to support. And, and this has at times meant that there have been, you know, certain uh, kind of aspects of the work that they've had to cool and put on the back burner because, you know, there's been a change of, in leadership or they just happen to be walking down the halls um, of their, their departments and there's an important conversation that they can lean into because they have access to this pot of funding, right? And we have seen really concretely, like one partner said to us, you know, we were approached by this really high level person in the ministry um, who said, we'd love you to do this work, but our procurement window has just closed. And, and, and kind of, but we, and, but we need this work to inform our, you know, overall sort of 2030 uh, kind of vision roadmap. And we're at a conundrum and our partners were able to say, oh, well, we can do this. And the ministry said, well, well, how, like, do you, like, is this a project? And they said, no, we have the funding to be able to support you and um, let's get started, right? So yes, I can second that from my own experience, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mohammed, are you yeah. about to second that as well? No, I, no, I, I, yeah, I think it's it's it's, it's right. Abeba is right on spot about that. Um, and also simply, I think for us, just allowing them to lead the process and and to determine what kinds of capacities they need, how you should manage the project, and how you should work with them. For me, and and you see that once you give them that autonomy. Uh, to decide what kinds of capacities they need, uh, when and how they want it, you would see behaviors changing, right? If you don't go in with a set of ideas about how you think change happens and you co-create the process of change with them, you, you certainly see behaviors that are changing. And I think we saw that with our community of practice. It wasn't a new concept uh, because if you understand our local government system, we do have multi-sectorial groups or, or actors that are embedded in the local government act. Uh, civil society is part of it, all kinds of departments, heads, the, the planning and coordinating unit is there. But the idea that, oh yeah, we, this, is, this is something just in name, recreating that in name and supporting them and asking them 
lead this process, have this conversation, have your own agenda and determine what it is that you think are the barriers to the challenges that you are facing and how you can overcome them. We can only come in and facilitate that process for you. And we saw quite a massive change, both in, in the evidence that is generated, the way it is analyzed, the inclusiveness in the process of policy decision-making and the outcomes that we, we saw with, with some of our district in terms of that process. So I think that for me, one lesson we took from, from that pilot phase was the idea that allow them or co-create the process of change with them. And sometimes let them lead the processes. They'll tell you what timing is appropriate. They'll tell you who needs to be brought into the conversation or into the room or into the community of practice and how uh, you can support to link up with national level actors and agencies to be able to expand the spaces for them to bring in their own ideas about how they understand change to happen even outside of the national guidelines that have been set forth. And to have that collaboration and working together was quite very useful for many of them. It provided many of them some kind of confidence. They were more confident that, oh, yeah, if I had the NDPC person coming here and working with us and trying to contextualize our needs and our challenges in the broad framework of the guidelines that we have, and he says it's okay and we can go ahead and generate our own localized data to inform the decisions that we are taking. That was very helpful. And that we thought was that center-local relationship was quite very useful. Bringing in civil society more actively also, um, and for our civil society partners, so look, we sit in and all we do is go to radio and have this uh, noise made about how the local government is not working, is supplying the resources, but the opportunity to engage with them, to have dialogue, to have this continuous conversation and the forum where we can bring this evidence to them, because really they are the ones who are going to make the changes anyway. They are the ones who really need this information to be able to change their behavior and resource allocation decisions. It's not sitting on radio and making that noise. It's important at some point, but really if you want change to happen, you really need to have a seat at where decision makers are and have a conversation with them and trying to influence them in terms of um, the evidence that you have so that at least you would see it playing out uh, in, in the decisions uh, that they make. And the policymakers value that kind of relationship. They want you to come to them first. They want you to have this engagement with them first. And so the community of practice and the forum that is generated and the relationship that was built uh, through that, we found out to be quite very useful uh, in the way that evidence uh, is applied. We're thinking about aligning two completely different systems, right? Government and, and academia. We have to think about how completely differently like they operate and see the world as, right? So it involves thinking about how you align incentives, how uh, different commissioning processes different are different, how um, they work under different time pressures and under uh, different career progression pathways. And so I think one of the biggest aha, moment, <clears throat> aha moments comes not only in, um, in, in really seeing how differently, how differently these different systems operate, but also the time that goes into building both empathetic learning about how another system operates and really integrating that into the way that you build relationships there. So, you know, if I'm if I'm a policymaker, understanding the pressures and decisions that researchers have to go through within their own university and, and vice versa, right? But also those, and I think the kind of issue around funding touches on this, but also the kind of operating procedures that need to happen in order to help data flow in between these systems in and of itself. So thank, thank you. Um, so I'm going to 
come back to something that that um, Ababa started to mention before, and maybe Mohammed, you'd like to pick up on this one first. I'm interested to hear how each of you take into account the politics of evidence in your work. It's often the number one thing that comes up when we talk about evidence use. How have you integrated, in a practical sense, uh, politics into the design and implementation of your projects, um, tackling evidence use? And is there anything that you would like to flag that you've learned? Uh, Mohammed, would you like to pick up on that first? Just uh, uh, at a subnational level, because it was it was quite a very new area for us to get into. We're working um, at a national level space, uh, but also even in the subnational level with certain understanding about the way politics moves things, but not specifically in the evidence use enterprise. And so the first thing we did was to try and understand the politics around that. And it was quite very clear to us who uh, the drivers are, who, who are the ones who oppose these processes and where party politics manifesto and the structure of local authority and who has authority and who has influence over resource allocation decisions and how you can influence them with the kinds of evidence in the decision and trying to align the evidence with the decisions uh, with the part, political party members that they have. Because if you come to Ghana, for example, you would find that the mayor is, is appointed by the national president and he's there to implement the party's manifesto. And then you have these bureaucrats who work under him. And so there's always a conflict between the bureaucrats and then uh, the, 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 the mayor who is a political appointee of, of the national government. And so without him in the space where you have these conversations, where you generate evidence that aligns to the party's manifesto, then you are, you are likely not to get anywhere. And so in our community of practice, for example, we try as much as possible to make sure that the political heads are fully informed, they are fully involved, they participate in the processes, you try to address some of their concerns, some of the policy challenges that they have, and how you can align this evidence really to, to, to their own advantage, right? If you want to understand uh, how far you've implemented a program that responds to people in return for, say, your vote, for example, how do you do it? And where are the areas where you think that your interventions can be able to influence these kinds of outcomes? How you generate that kind of data and how you facilitate the bureaucrat to explain this uh, to the political heads, we thought was quite very important. And we were quite very deliberate about that process in trying to involve uh, the political heads. We were also minded by the impact of the external environment, right? So media was quite very important for us. And so you go out there on radio and ask people to come and account for how they make decisions, right? And to expose themselves to a whole community uh, relative to their decision-making processes, why they decide to send a project this way and not in other areas. And that kind of pressure also sort of, and because they know if, if you make a bad decision and the next time you come and you want our vote, that would impact our choices and our behavior. And so bringing that aspect of it and exposing them to the broader community, we thought was also another social accountability pressure that you can bring to bear on how evidence is used and how they come to justify the decision-making process and with what kinds of evidence that they had. So those are a number of mechanisms that we put in place to ensure that the politics of it is, is actually understood and you create incentives that would foster behavior changes to respond to certain community needs and, and all of that. Yeah, so we did not do kind of any kind of structured or formal PA. Um, at the outset of the partnership, and this is before we, or 4 came on to support the par partnership, 
They did do a mapping of the evidence ecosystem to understand key actors and stakeholders and relationships and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but there hasn't been a formalized sort of PA process. But I feel that the way we sort of, um, you know, address this is that, you know, we work with researchers and they're leading kind of knowledge translation experts. Um, they are true superstars in their field who understand the context, right? And who are most proximate to the issues and challenges that we are trying to address, right? So we in our role, you know, our role um, is to and to facilitate sort of access to each other, but they are the experts and they are truly centered as experts and the experts who understand the context the best, right? And so um, that has been how we've been informed of sort of evolving political dynamics and, you know, and then we've also supported it with this fl flexible funding mechanism that acknowledges, right, the politics in each of the different contexts. Maybe to add to what Ababa said yeah. about uh, uh, working with. So for example, for us in our case, we, we sort of also identify people or organizations in this district that really understood the contest, right? They have the relationships, they have the social capital to be able to mobilize actors. And to, I think that for us was also quite very central. Sitting in Accra and not pretending to have the kind of social capital in each of these three districts and think that you can go there and influence and understand the local politics and dynamics it wasn't going to cut out for us. And so we worked through our partnership with some of our civil society partners in this district who had the reputation, they had social capital, they understood the context, and they could be able to mobilize people and bring them uh, across the table and to share their evidence. You know, one of the other things that our partners have been doing is, um, you know, fully understanding this kind of change and uh, you know, elected officials, the electoral cycles is really placing an emphasis on like, institutionalizing and embedding evidence use, right? So that it can withstand um, these sort of political transitions. Um, and so, you know, like our partners in South Africa who have worked to embed evidence use guidelines um, at the cabinet level so that every social policy that comes to the cabinet has to, you know, address, you know, have an evidence base, right? It's our partner in, in Nigeria working um, you know, building relationships, really spending, you know, the bulk of a year to build relationships with key actors in parliament, right, to help like connect them to ministry partners, and to start to build a rapid response unit within parliament, right, um, that is training career sort of kind of um, civil servants, and, and that can withstand these kind of inevitable political cycles and uh, transitions, right? So there's a lot of emphasis within the partnership on how do we embed and institutionalize, um, you know, tools, guidelines, units, um, so that, you know, when these changes come, um, which we know are coming, we'll have a way of maintaining um, the work that we've done to, to really embed evidence use and and policy and practice. On gender, really keen to hear from, from each of you, to what extent have you been able to take a gender mainstreamed approach to the design and implementation of your work? And I know that you've all mentioned in, in different ways an awareness of who's left out in the evidence space of power dynamics, uh, 
the importance of inclusion and just particularly interested to hear uh, how you have been able to address gender in the work that you've been doing. Uh, Mohammed, would you like to take this one first? I have to make a confession. I think it, it's, it's, it's one area that in terms of our project, we are trying to get our head around it, right? How can we be very deliberate about the gender dimension to the work that we are doing? And we still, it's not clear to us um, how we can approach it that way. We are still quite very open to it. There are obviously some, some way you may say that you have been gender responsive, like in, in the processes and the systems that you try to create in the actors who participate in this process, you try as much as possible to be more inclusive and to have um, um, gender units, gender persons, and, and activists in practice, so to speak, who are minded by issues that affect genders and all of that into the spaces, into the conversation. And even in terms of the projects that you monitor for which you provide feedback, to inform decision-making, you try your best to do that. Is that the pathway uh, to be gender responsive in your EIDM practice? Um, we still are not quite very clear. And so as I've spoken to you on several occasions, I, we are very open to this broad conversation and learning for us in terms of how, because it's important uh, for us to bring in those issues and to be very deliberate uh, in our programming, in our interventions, to ensure that at least uh, gender is, is quite central to the outcomes that we seek. And so I'm, 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 I'm all ears to hear from my other colleagues, uh, Abeba and, and Karanda, if, if, if there's anything for me to learn and on that and to, to try and begin to think more deeply in terms of our own project. Um, I have to also say, I think it's something that we're really considering is how, how do we improve the diversity of voices that participate in these kinds of engagement processes, not just gender, but, you know, underrepresented communities from across from across UK. How can we increase um, participation um, and representation in key areas such as academic advisory boards, right, and, and um, in knowledge exchange events, right? And some of these are really hard to tackle because they're systemic problems. But um, something that we have seen is that there's just, and I think when thinking about big systemic problems, we can also think about what are the actions that we can take within this nexus of control and then how can we influence others within this as well. Um, and something that I've seen is a systematic la lack of data capture about who is participating in activities in the first place. So I think that's an also a really good step to first let's collect and generate the evidence so that we can then change our decision making accordingly. And then another Another thing that, that we've done through the capability development work within CAPE is we recently kind of put out this massive learning toolkit, 250 pages of interactive activities to support uh, evidence capable, capability development in practice. So anything from how to use evidence and expertise in formulating a problem to monitoring and evaluation to evaluation and feedback. And so with every single activity, we provided prompts to say, hey, wait a second, who's, who's participating here? What voices are represented? Who's excluded here? And how can you try and be inclusive, not just in the evidence that you're, that you're using or generating, but in those that you're engaging with along the way? So hoping to, hoping to provide those, those prompts, but it's a, it's a difficult, dif difficult issue. Many of them do bring a gendered lens as they're considering, as they're building evidence maps, for example, right? And trying to understand the input of different, you know, um, the evidence on, on women. Um, but where I think we fall short is in 
um, you know, asking questions like, do we need to think about how we communicate evidence and do we need to do it differently, you know, for, for different groups? And, 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 you know, in particular, I haven't seen people like say, okay, well, let's think about how we do this for women. Um, do we, um, I, I'm not, I, I think we can do more to understand sort of the um, gendered impacts of policy and, and programs sort of, right. And, and the evidence and there, there's just, so, it feels to me that we're kind of scratching the surface with just the, the representation piece, the numbers piece, like how many women in the room, but we're not really going deep enough to really understand how to truly mainstream gender consideration in all aspects of the policy process, right? Um, there, I think, 100% agree, uh, there's a lot more work to be done. So just to close then, um, I'm going to invite everybody to just say a quick word about what's next for evidence-informed policy work. Uh, at your organization. Karanda, would you like to kick off? What's next? Um, yesterday, we just had uh, the launch of this of this big toolkit, right, where, where we're really trying to help promote learning within this space and help people think about within, especially civil servants, when, within these uh, really pressured time, time structures, what are the concrete, easy, quick win, time-segmented things that you can do to understand how to use evidence and expertise expertise within practice. So I think for us uh, moving forward, it's all going to be about um, trying to share and replicate this process of facilitating learning uh, in, a, in additional context. So excited to see how, how that goes. Yeah, I, I think we, we, we still are ongoing. Um, for us, it's, it's to continue to do what we are doing. Um, there are a number of things that are very heavy on our minds. Uh, one of it is really around learning. How do we document properly uh, what we are learning? Because in our case, it's almost like a novelty to do what we are doing at the subnational level to really focus attention and to create conversation, debate, and actions around that. And so what is it that we are learning that we can share with others who are interested in doing uh, something like that? The other part of it is some way, somehow in a very small, but not clear in our mind how to amplify equity, gender issues. And so the idea of bringing community into this space and our next space is something that we are focusing on. How do we create an interface between the community and policymakers to have regular dialogue, regular conversation? And in this case, we can be very deliberate to bring in women voices so that policymakers can hear the challenges that they face. And maybe that may inform some uh, decisions that are made in terms of resource allocation and to, to address uh, the development issues. And I think that the other part of it for us is still the community of practice. I think we still have a lot of learning to do. Um, well, Pierce comes to a close at the end of the year um, after an amazing uh, four years. So we are looking uh, forward to a bit of a breather and taking time to reflect on lessons and achievements um, in the new year. So we'll be heavily immersed in kind of writing up um, all that we've learned over the last four years and sharing what we uh, have learned. So stay tuned and be on the lookout for that. Um, this was such a fruitful partnership, right? And so we hope to continue to work with think tanks and, and research organizations in a way that continues to center them as experts, um, that creates space for learning. And, you know, at R4D, we have a huge portfolio of collaborative uh, learning um, activities. 
And because we believe in the power of joint learning and exchange um, in centering sort of our partners as, as experts and allowing them to chart their own uh, learning path and, and learning questions and learning agenda. Um, and, you know, we, we have seen sort of single-handedly through this peers partnership, um, the impact um, that uh, has had. Thank you so much. There's been so much uh interesting experience and insight here and it's fascinating to hear how you're all working uh, on evidence in very different contexts but maybe some related or, or similar types of challenges that you're that you're tackling so thank you so much for joining OTT Talks.